Well, let me ask you to turn in the back of your Bibles to the ending chapter, Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22. I'm going to pick up at verse 12 and we will read through verse 21. So these are the final words of the scriptures. Starting at verse 12, let us give attention to the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers, and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things. For the churches, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, And let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. That ends the reading of God's holy word. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord, the concepts that we will seek to bring forward today are of such enormity that only with your spirit will we be able to have them applied and understood. Would you do that in each and every life represented here, we pray, to your glory. Amen. If you go to Washington, D.C. and visit the Library of Congress, you can find there really a very powerful uh, testimony, witness, to the Christian heritage of our nation that is really quickly being abandoned. In the main reading room above a figure, a statue representing and called history, are the words from Alfred Lord Tennyson's poem, In Memoriam. One God... One law, one element, and then that phrase ends this way, and one far-off divine event 
to which the whole creation moves. We'll speak today about the second coming of our Lord Jesus. And there really is a continuity in what we have been doing. Pastor Will has been using his opening Sunday mornings to address some foundational issues of biblical churches, of any biblical church. Any biblical church, if you remember his first one, is going to be a church that is dependent upon God for its life and for its ministry. It's going to be a church, secondly, that is a church that is involved in prayer, that, that believes in prayer, practices prayer, looks for God to answer prayer. It's going to be a church, thirdly, that as we would seek to, to walk with the Lord, enter his rest, it's going to be a church that is, is dealing with, reading, understanding, seeking to apprehend the word of God. You'll remember that from last Sunday, those that were able to attend um, from Hebrews chapter 4. Well, I'm, I think that the topic today is, is right in the same category of the foundation of the truths of the marks, dare I say, of any biblical church. And that is, uh, by the way, uh, let me enter. I don't know if you noticed it or not, but you do have a handout uh, there with an outline on it that will be going. And you'll see there the, at the very top of the page the theme that every truly biblical church maintains a life-transforming conviction of our Lord's second coming. So this too, I would nail down, you might say, as a plank, as a, as a foundation piece of any biblical church. And hopefully you will agree with me as we work through some of this material. Uh, so we're not going to, by the way, uh, of all people present today, no one is aware more than I that I'm certainly not going to cover comprehensively issues and thoughts and, and, and aspects of the Lord's second coming. There are all kinds of matters that I'm not going to address. Uh, I'm not going to be speaking of the issue of the millennium, of signs leading up to the second coming, of the Antichrist, and other things like that. You can see, though, from the outline that we're going to cover uh, a fair amount of material that is very important. And hopefully, as we go through this, you also will conclude that you as an individual Christian and that we as a congregation need to have, need to pray and look for the Lord to work these truths so into our, our mental framework, our faith, that it is life transforming, a life transforming conviction that our Lord is coming again. And the, the pattern is, I'm not going to deal a great deal with any one scripture. Um, I'm going to, if some of you take notes, get your pen and paper ready. Uh, we're going to look at, a, and I will read and refer to several scriptures. Okay? So that's going to be the, the general format. But hopefully as the momentum builds and we go to scripture after scripture, you will also have this conviction. So let's take a look then at uh, the first point. 
my main point one, I'm calling the necessity of the second coming. Therefore, it's certainty. It will certainly happen. There's a necessity to it. And we could go and look at, at various lines of thought, but at the most foundational level of why there must be a second coming of our Lord, it is because Jesus himself said so. Just one case of several we could choose from. Mark chapter 8 verse 38 reads this way. The Lord Jesus, after, after speaking about discipleship, about taking up your cross and such, says this, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Simply put, if Jesus said these things and doesn't come back, and I'm not trying to be sacrilegious, but he lied. He lied. And this is just one of several. Think about some of the parables that we, uh, of the, the stewards that are to be faithful while their master is on away and but is coming back. Simply put, if Jesus lied about this event, we can pack up right now and go home. There is this necessity and therefore this certainty that he is coming back. You know, as Christians, we are, uh, we're fond of reminding people that the Bible is a book about history. I mean, it is, it, it's historical. It deals with, with facts and, and uh, events of the past. Uh, we think about, it, about what God has done in real time and space. We just, just a month ago, just slightly over a month ago, we did that, didn't we? We call it what? We call it Christmas. We look back at a historical event. And, and yet we're, we're often forgetful that not only is the Bible a book about the past, but in reality, the Bible is also a book about the future. The Christian message is fundamentally, to use a big term, eschatological. That's the fancy term to speak about the things of the end of time, the things that are future, the eschatos, the end. And it's only, it's not only, the Bible is not only about how God has entered the world already during the first coming, but also how God will enter the world again during the second coming. And when he does so, he will set things right. You know, did you celebrate Christmas? Raise your hand if you celebrated Christmas in some form or fashion. So what were you celebrating? By the way, yeah, it's kind of funny, isn't it? Presbyterians can raise their hands in services. You know? uh, <laughs> but what were we celebrating? Weren't we celebrating the truth, the, the conviction we had that God came to this earth and we'll find it you know we've dealt with that so much and we can kind of get it well he comes and look there's a baby and he grows up 
and he walks on the earth and and things. And there's a sense in which because because we can relate to a human being, uh, we we get that and believe that and live and feed on that. The concepts we're going to be addressing today are every bit as certain as what you believe happened those years ago in Bethlehem. So that's what we want to say. It is a necessity and therefore an absolute certainty that he is coming in. Second point. So we need to take a look at a description here, and I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on these. These are some pretty standard words that describe, that are descriptive of our Lord's second coming. But it is important for us to, to see them and try to begin to understand. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm stressing this because if you were like me before I, I was felt led in this direction, my guess is that the second coming was not a huge part of your thinking in your normal everyday life. Hopefully it will be from here on out. But let's take a look. A key text, Acts chapter 1. I'm picking on verses 10 and 11. In Acts chapter 1, you have the Lord meeting his disciples. uh, And you have his ascension. And right after his ascension into heaven, uh, there are uh, angels there, two men. And here's how it reads. Acts 1 verses 10 and 11. And while they, that is the disciples, were gazing into heaven as he went... They saw him go up into heaven into the clouds while they were gazing into heaven as he went. Behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And so let's just, let's just take a look at the first three of these descriptive, these adjectives that I'm using. So his second coming from just this one text, again, we could go to many more, is going to be personal. There's a personal coming. Note that the, the angels looked at the disciples and said, this Jesus, this person whom you, you saw just elevated and raised, Through the clouds into heaven, this one, this person is going to come again. And therefore, of course, it is physical. He says, these these two men say, this Jesus, he will come in the same way. In other words, he will come bodily. He will come in human form. He will come in that resurrected body, that body made now that is now in heaven. He comes that way physically. He comes visibly. Just from this text, they said, listen, he's come, they're coming. He's going to come again the same way as you saw him go into heaven. You're going to see him come back oh there'll there'll be no mistake when the Lord Jesus returns it will not only be visible it will be audible 
We could go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 where there will be the cry of the angels and the, the sound of the trumpets. It will be there. It is sudden. I move to a different text here. 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 and 3. Paul writing to the Thessalonians says, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying... Oh, there is peace and security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. They will not escape. Well, I'm not sure. I'll never know what sudden labor pains are like. But I think we know enough that uh, doctors may say, well, your child is coming on April uh, 7th or whatever, and it may just not happen on April 7th. It might be here, it might be there, and, and, and a sudden onset of that. And so, yes, our Lord's coming is clearly described as, as taking people by surprise. It will be universal. It will be universal. Revelation 20 Verses 11 through 13, the Lord, uh, the John there speaking says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Doesn't just the reading of these things. When's the last time you read some of these things? Just the Hopefully you're entering in on what I've been struggling with for all week as I've tried to prepare the magnitude of these thoughts, these truths. None escape. No one. It is universal in its impact. And that leads, of course, to that which is inescapable, just a corollary of that. But I wanted to read Revelation 6, verses 12 through 17. It reads this way. One of the angels opens the sixth seal. John writing says, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. And now listen to this depiction of those that desire to escape. They know what has happened. They, it has come suddenly. They're unprepared says in verse 15, Then the kings of the earth, these great ones, the kings of the earth 
and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains calling to the mountains and rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand what is this Desire that an avalanche of rocks might fall on me and end my existence if I could just escape the wrath of the Lamb and of His Father. It is inescapable. That will not do. Even from there, He will draw them forth before His throne for judgment. And therefore, it is glorious and triumphant then will appear Matthew 24 30 and 31 then will appear in heaven the sign of the son of man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call And they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Oh, he comes in glory. He comes triumphant. He comes as king. And we're going to look at that in just a moment. I tried to think, how how do you illustrate something like this? Is, Is this really going to take place? And I thought... And I talked with Cecilia, and I'm, I'll do it. I, I think, would it be if we were having a conversation with the Lord and say, Lord, I wish, I wish you would have kind of helped us understand these things. What if his response would be, I regularly sought to help you understand these things. In the national tragedies and forces of nature and such. By way of example, let me, let me just say, uh, I know a little bit about computers. I'm able to go on YouTube and Google some things. And I Googled the uh, Japan's tsunami back in March of 2011. And there are videos that show the impact of that. There's a, starts out there, you're in a city. There's a big river, river that's there, big concrete walls keeping that river contained. And the sirens are going off. The officials are trying to warn people, get to high ground, get to high ground. They're trying to warn them. And you know, you know, people, the Japanese, I guess, are kind of like us. Oh, this is kind of good. This is cool. Let's look at this. Let's stay close. And you see the waves coming in. And the waves are getting bigger and bigger. And suddenly people realize, I got to get out of here. And you, you begin to watch. And boats go by and houses go by and trees go by and, and cars go by and, and bridges are being flooded. And, and you're, you're, you're looking at this. And, and it, of course, it really happened. And you're, you're looking and you're thinking, No forces of human being, no no amount of people can stop this. It's, you can't, you can't, you can't 
maneuver it. You can't channel it. It's overflowing. It's taking over everything. And I wonder if that would be the Lord's response with hurricanes and tornadoes and tsunamis and all of that, saying, oh, I gave you samples of what it would be like on that great and glorious day. Well, main point three. We need to talk about the purpose then of this coming. And a key text, I'm not going to read the whole text for you, but the key, a key text, just one, is Matthew 25 at the very end. You can start at verse 31 and read to the end. I'm going to read a, a, a sampling of these verses. You'll recognize the text. Matthew 25, 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, a glorious and triumphant coming, comes in his glory... And all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then, now a new term is used, then the king then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And you know the account. They, they are amazed and he talks about what they did here and there. But then, he sa- then it says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. And that section ends in verse 46. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So what is going on? What is the purpose of this? Well, I've summarized it in three points. Jesus returns to reign as king. Jesus returns to reign as king. The supremacy of Jesus Christ will be acknowledged universally. There's the great text in Philippians 2, verses 9 and 11. That's the text where it initially talks about his entrance into the world. And we learn as a church about his humiliation and our need in this day to practice humility before God, certainly before one another and treat one another with kindness and respect. And and Paul enters this hymn that's there and he concludes that hymn with these words Philippians 2 9 through 11 therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and even under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This will be the day when that is enforced, when that is done. Just another text. 
Revelation 19 verses 11 through 16 is that text which records our Lord coming. And, and when we, it's apocalyptic lit, uh, literature, of course, but it speaks about him riding on a white horse and he is the faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. And this is the text, Revelation 19, 11 through 16. Verse 16 is that text that ends this way. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That is your Christ. That is your Jesus. That will be the day in which undeniably all the angels in heaven said in heaven that name will be exalted all on earth and even as we've already read about the sea and about hell all under the earth will bow the knee and confess and even in hell I think they confess maybe through gritted teeth Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords this will be a day in which he returns to reign as king of kings. He will be supreme. But also, as Matthew 25 mentioned, he returns to heal and restore, this is just my language, to heal and restore the whole world. In his triumph, he will truly bring about, in the new heavens and the new earth, the establishment of that which is good and that which is true and that which is beautiful and that which is right and righteous. Ephesians 1, 9 and 10, Paul summarizes what God is doing in and through Christ in this way, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, here it comes, to unite all things in him, to unite all things in Jesus the Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Jesus didn't just save you. Praise God he saved you. Praise God he saved me. But he's about bigger things than that. He's about new creation. He's about a new heavens and a new earth. And he is summing those things up. Colossians 1 repeats a similar theme. Colossians 1, 19 through 20. Paul again writing says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is not universalism, but it is the dealing with all sin and evil and the bringing to unity of a new heavens and a new earth. And that leads us to think about this third purpose. Jesus returns to judge and end evil, sin, and Satan. Let me just give you a sense of, I'm just going to read a few things, but it will show you how in the early church, this was a key teaching in apostolic preaching. Acts chapter 10, 40 and 43, Peter is there preaching to Cornelius and his household. And he says, 
God raised him, Jesus, God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Acts 17, verses 30 and 31. Paul now is before this Gentile crowd in Athens. And so Paul's preaching in Athens. And it reads this way. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Romans 2, Paul writing to the Romans, Romans 2, 14 through 16, he's speaking about the Gentiles' accountability before God, even without the written law which the Jews have. And he says, when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their uh, conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day excuses them or accuses them when? On that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 4.1, Paul's charge to Timothy. <clears throat> Paul is in 2 Timothy, Paul's last letter. Paul sees his death on the horizon. He writes a letter to his beloved disciple Timothy and he charges him this way I charge you Timothy in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and listen to the description of Christ Jesus I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom preach the word Those three things, those three accomplishments summarize, I'll say, the heart of the end times, the Lord's second coming, the resurrection of the dead, both the righteous and the unrighteous, gathering together all those still alive at that time entering into judgment and the judgment rendered and the destiny sent there, those sent to their appropriate destinies. All of this showing the supremacy, the exaltation, the honor, the dignity of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, very quickly, I'm not going to spend much time on this point, number four, the time of the second coming. Some of you have been hanging on that. Oh, Bill's going to tell us the time. I am not. Uh, I will say this. Get rid of your charts. Get rid of your schematics. Get rid of your timelines. 
quit fooling around with those things. One thing is true about everyone who has ever tried to predict this day. They're wrong. They're wrong. They're wrong. Louis Burkhoff, in his systematic theology, says, The exact time of the coming of the Lord is unknown. Matthew 24, 36, and all the attempts of men to figure out the exact date prove to be erroneous. The only thing that can be said with certainty on the basis of Scripture is that He will return at the end of the world. That's enough for us to know. But I think here's a key point. We are 2,000 years past that. 2,000 years. What, what is God doing and I think there's a real note of, of delight in what I'm about to share. It helps me. It may seem like tardiness to suffering saints. This timing of the coming consummation decided by the Father and known to Him. Why is He delaying? He is delaying because of His gracious resolve to redeem all His elect among all the peoples of the earth. God's patience in determining the moment of his Messiah's return and the consummation of his kingdom is motivated by his resolve to keep his promise to Abraham, bringing blessing to all of his elect among every nationality to the end of the earth. To summarize it, Jesus waits in order to save more people. That's good news for you today, particularly if to this point you have not trusted in him as your Savior. The key text, 2 Peter 3, 8 through 10. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Well, let's go then. So what is, what's the application to this? Well, hopefully you have picked up on some application already. But I want to mention just two texts here. We're made, last point, and I'll be done. The present day application of believing in the second coming. Two texts. First Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Wonderful thought. What do we do with that? Paul tells us, therefore... Encourage one another with these words. So there's one aspect. Another one, 1 Corinthians 15, 56 through 58. You know 1 Corinthians 15, great resurrection chapter. Paul ends that chapter. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Wonderful news. What do we do with that? Well, he says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding, always abounding in the work 
of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The second coming of the Lord is not for you to put your charts and things out on a table and try to discern when that day is going to be. The application of this doctrine is as all doctrine, it's ethical. We're to live a certain way. I don't have enough time to uh, go through, I think, all of these things, but you see them there. What does that mean? Well, to, to live a certain way within, we're going to live in such a way as we maintain a, a, what I'm calling a holistic understanding of salvation. What I mean by that is salvation is more than spiritual. Salvation is body and soul. Salvation is public and private. Salvation involves not just me getting to heaven, but it's me getting to heaven with you. And, and so there's application. It's heart and my actions. It includes all of creation. We will maintain a proper perspective, secondly, regarding the problem of evil. Pastor Will mentioned just a specific case, how horrific this new, uh, new, uh, new York law is. And we can think about just down the road in Connecticut, uh, the the uh, Newtown, uh, Connecticut, the massacres there in the school that's now some years old. But we, we look around and we seem to think, God, God, are you silent? Why are you silent, O Lord? Why don't you do something? As long as we stay focused on this world, the horizontal level, the resolution of this problem is veiled to us. It's only when we look to a future certain world and king, a world where God creates a new heavens and a new earth, where righteousness dwells, Second Peter 3.13, that we begin to gain perspective. For in that world, the new heavens and the new earth, God will bring full justice and all wrongs will be made right. You can count on it. You can count on it. And so we gain a perspective regarding the evil that's in our world. We learn about personal holiness. I've mentioned to you 2 Peter 3, 11 through 13. Peter writes, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people, he asks the question, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Lives of holiness and godliness. You can also write down 1 John 3, 1 through 3. I'm going to just mention a famous quote of C.S. Lewis here. Lewis writes, If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this world. Now, if Lewis wrote that, and he's speaking decades ago, you can only imagine how true that is today. And therefore, I'm just going to conclude, we maintain a passionate longing then, praying uh, that the Spirit of God would keep these truths bur- burning, that an eager expectation, a desire to see our Lord come in glory. Just one text, 1 Corinthians 1, 7. The Corinthian church eagerly awaits that day. So, a healthy church then is a future-oriented church. 
Don't mean that the church needs to be, we're not, I've already expressed, we're not going to hammer out competing views of the millennium or end times. But we recover that grand vision of revelation when God says, I am making all things new. We become people that end like the Bible ends. He who testifies to these things says, sure, this is Jesus' statement, surely I am coming soon. What is to be the heartfelt, joyous, excited response of the church? Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. That is to be a mark of any biblical church. The Savior has come for you. An invitation here. The Savior has come for you. We celebrated that at Christmas. He's coming again. And on that day, the door of salvation is closed. When he came, he opened the door. And it's still a day in which he is still saying to us all, and particularly to any here who have not come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And on that day when I come again, it will not be a terrifying day to you, but it will be a glorious day because you'll be with me forever. So come today, come this day, without one plea, for Jesus' blood was shed for you. Say, Jesus, I come. Jesus, I come. Let's pray. Lord, you have given promise concerning your word. That when it goes forth, it will not return void. It will 